Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Thanks for tuning back in, everyone, and welcome to the first interlude episode of A Podcast for the Missing. I want to thank all of you who listened to the series on Ryan Stuka. The support you've shown the podcast and the awareness you helped bring to the case is overwhelming. Because it takes me months upon months to put these series together, I've decided I'm going to record and release one-off episodes when I can. It's a way for me to squeeze in interviews that might not work in a narrative for a series that I'm working on, but it's also an opportunity for me to give you some more content. For this first interlude episode, I talked to author John Billman, whose latest book is titled The Cold Vanish, Seeking the Missing in North America's Wildlands. John's book primarily looks at the disappearance of Jacob Gray, who went missing in Olympic National Park in Washington State in April of 2017. But John also traveled across the continent, covering a plethora of cases, including, very briefly, the disappearance of Chris Fowler. I hope you enjoy our chat, and I want to thank John for coming on the podcast. Here's my conversation with John Billman. Hey, John, uh, I appreciate you coming on the show. Thanks for doing this. Absolutely, Tyler. Glad to be here. Before we get into the cold vanish, can you tell the listener a little bit about who you are? Yeah, so uh, I, I teach in the English department at Northern Michigan University here in uh, Marquette in the Upper Peninsula. And um, I, I'm a freelance magazine writer as well. And so um, that's how I stumbled into this, this world of uh, people missing in, in uh, North America's wildlands. That's a great segue into uh, my next question is, for those of people who haven't read The Cold Vanish, um, I'll give a little bit in the intro. I'll talk a little bit about it. But for you, how did the idea of writing about missing persons in, in the wildlands of America come about? Well, it started, uh, my wife and I were, were living in, in southwestern Wyoming in the late 90s, and um, a woman, a runner, an athlete she was, uh, named Amy Bechtel was training for the Olympic marathon trials, and um, she was on a training run in the Wind River mountain range, and, and she went missing, and um, she still hasn't been found. And so uh, we followed the uh, the media coverage of, of that story every day, and um and and I just I think I just became obsessed with with her story, and that led to 
this obsession with other stories. And um, I was uh, I was given a magazine assignment uh, several years ago to write an update about the Amy Bechtel disappearance, and um, that was the first of several magazine pieces regarding persons missing in the wild. And ultimately, your book fo- focuses around uh, one case primarily. Um, I'm Jacob Gray. How did how did that become the focus of of the Cold Vanish? I I was actually in Colorado researching another another missing persons case, and um, I started following some. Uh, I read a lot of um, local and regional publications, and I started following um, in the newspaper the. Um, the Peninsula Daily News out of Port Angeles, Washington, about this young man, this 22-year-old uh, cyclist, cyclist and surfer, who vanished. Uh, they found his his bike and, and equipment in uh, Olympic National Park, and um, that was really interesting to me because I, I was I was in Colorado researching a runner who'd gone missing. And like Amy Bechtel, runners runners go missing, hikers go missing, fly fisher people go missing, but cyclists just don't go missing very often. And so that really piqued my interest. Um, and um, I I pitched uh, that story to Bicycling Magazine, and they sent me out there to to cover it. And for those uh, who don't know, um, can you can you give a brief overview of, of kind of the circumstances surrounding the uh, Jacob Gray disappearance? Sure. Um, so it, w- it was April of, of 2017, and um, Jacob uh, Jacob had um, he tr- he he'd taken a go at community college, and it just uh, college was not his thing. He was living in Washington State. He moved up there to live with family, uh, just to kind of have a change of scenery. He's a, he's originally from um, Santa Cruz, California. Grew up in the water. Just uh, the the whole family are just uh, they're elite surfers, and. Um, he had planned on um, putting together a touring rig with with a bicycle and a child's trailer that he'd converted into a gear trailer, and he was gonna he was gonna take his time and ride east to Vermont to see his brother, and that was uh, you know it gave him a goal. It was an adventure, and from what we can understand, he was uh, he was on some kind of a training run. He left in the middle of the night in a in a sideways rainstorm. And instead of heading east toward Vermont, he headed west toward the Pacific Ocean, and um, uh, a hiker was was driving to the trailhead and spotted his bike and trailer along the side of the Soul Duck River Road. And she thought it was odd because it wasn't like the the uh, whoever owned the bike and, and trailer were trying to hide it. Um, it was it was just sort of exposed as if um, the owner was just maybe had gone down to the river. And, uh, you know, was going to be back very, very shortly. Other than uh, it being a little odd for um, a cyclist to go missing, what else struck you early on about the Jacob Gray uh, disappearance that really made you want to look further into it? Well, um, it it was odd in that that his gear was was laid out there. So so anybody could have just kind of, you know, swung in there with their vehicle and and picked it up. So um, he had... It, it looked like this person had another intention. They were they they had a plan, and, and family and rangers and um, searchers. Nobody knew what it was. And early on, um, I uh, I I think what I, I found interesting, Tyler, was the um, just the way that the search was handled and and at times mishandled by uh, national park law enforcement, and how that affected the family. 
And then perhaps most interesting was how the family stepped up and took control of, of the search and said, we, you know, we're just going to, um, you know, we're going to move heaven and earth till we find our, our son. And that's what, um, that's certainly what, um, um, Randy Gray did. And Randy Gray was, was generous enough to allow me into his life and into the search for his son. And, you know, without any, you know, without any restrictions, it was just, uh, come and, and if anything, you can help me. And, uh, I got to, I got to witness this incredible father, um, you know, under the, the hardest circumstances that a human being can go through, um, you know, not knowing what happened to your son and, and probably the loss of your son. When I was reading the book, it felt very much like you were embedded, um, not just in this case, but in this family and in these circumstances. What was like? What was that like for you as a writer and an author and an, an, an observer? I mean, it, it must have been emotionally challenging at times to cover something like this in such great deal in great detail on location. Yeah, you know, and I, and I, 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 I think I'm aware. I, I, I try really, really hard not to become what I just call an ambulance chaser. Um, I, you know, I, I it, it is, you know, uh, Pauline Boss. Um, describes she has a book called Ambiguous Loss, and just she describes what a family goes through in these circumstances as, um, you know, uh, literally the hardest thing any human being can can endure. And um, you know, uh, Randy was unusual. I mean, I, I, I try to be careful in contacting family. It's never easy. And um, you know, some some families, uh, some parents just. Uh, just say no, thank you. I'm not. I'm not interested in in talking with you. Um, Randy was the opposite. I, I uh, he invited me out to um, his sort of field station, which is what we call the Bigfoot Barn, and I could probably get into that in a minute. But um, you know, I, I landed in Seattle, took the ferry across to to Bainbridge, Bainbridge Island and the Olympic Peninsula. And uh, met Randy out in the middle of nowhere, and he um, he punched me in the arm and gave me a bear hug like we'd known each other all our lives. And he's just that's just a that's the kind of guy he is. And and uh, you know um, I think he I think he just saw me as a as a person who could you know come out after the official search was over and um, could be another sort of set of eyeballs and another another brain to help try to find Jacob. It seemed like you two, um, in the book anyway, I get a sense that there was a, you formed a bit of a bond with Randy and, and, you know, he, the heroic things he did looking for his son, uh, really, really stand out. I'm wondering, looking back, are there any moments where you, 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 you know, you want to highlight or, or really, you know, discuss about Randy because there's so many times when you're reading and, and, you know, it's not like he was just out in the bush, bushwhacking, looking like he was diving into rivers in freezing cold water. Uh, I wonder if you can talk about like just how incredible it was to witness a father going to, you know, the ultimate ends of the peninsula looking for his son and doing all these extreme things. Hello, nerds. Come listen to the History Nerds United podcast, and let's make history fun again. We interview today's best authors, whether they are established Pulitzer Prize winners or someone debuting their first book. Let us show you that history is not a boring class you took in high school, but a place where the best stories come from. And we don't just cover history. We also love to chat about true crime, biographies, memoirs, and so much more. So head on over to History Nerds United, and let us introduce you to your new favorite book and learn the story behind the story. History. United. 
Yeah, it, it, it was. It, it, in some ways, and looking back on it, especially Tyler, it feels it feels a little larger than life. I mean, just um, you know, Randy's got you know he's he's in his mid sixties and um, you know um, uh, an, an elite surfer, but he, he uh, works really hard in his construction business and um, you know he I guess you could, he's fit from that, but he's just a natural athlete and he, he's fluid. And and not just in the water, but the, when we would we would move through the the rainforest, and um, the way he would just sort of leap over logs, and um, and and he was just tireless, just tireless. And and I, you know, sometimes we would um, we would not pack enough food to be out for the kind of hours we were out there. And he never, you know, he never said, you know, I'm really hungry, or you know, that wasn't. I just think that. Um, Jacob was foremost on his mind, and that just—that's what fueled him. He was going to find his son, and um, I, I've never met anybody quite like Randy Gray. He's a real special, special person. And you know, every day I wonder if I have—I have the stuff to search for one of my kids if um, if, if if they went missing, and I, and I I don't know. I don't know if I do. Yeah, your portrayal of Randy is is incredible. Um, it's gut wrenching and heart wrenching um, all at the same time. And, and what an amazing person! Uh, before we move on, uh, one last thing I have to ask you about um, about Jacob Gray is I, I just wanted to ask what what was the the inside of the Bigfoot Lodge like that Randy had because uh, you do describe it in the book. But I'm wondering, can you tell me about you know what it was like to be in the middle of nowhere um, in this lodge, uh, having never been there before? Um, it sounded kind of surreal. Yeah, and that's, you know, Randy doesn't believe in, in coincidence, and maybe I don't either anymore, because, okay, so you have to picture Highway 101 um, on the northern part, of the, it runs east and west on the northern part of Olympic Peninsula, and um, it's very, very rural. There, there are very few towns, and they're spread out spread out pretty far. And so you have you have one of the north entrances to Olympic National Park is the Soul Duck River Road that, that, that runs along the Soul Duck River. And uh, there's a there's a there's a park entrance station there where you can you can buy a pass or show the show the ranger your pass. And outside of that, the absolute closest uh, private property just across the 101 from the park is uh, is this place. Uh, it's a it's a steel uh, pole barn. And it, that I I just call the Bigfoot barn because it is it's owned by. Um, I, and I don't want to say Bigfoot enthusiasts because I think they're more than that. Bigfoot researchers, and some of, some of them you you may have even seen on some of the cable shows. But um, it's this facility that uh, that houses um, you know uh, plaster casts of footprints, uh, a library of, of Bigfoot related books. Um, there's a wonderful uh, bar made out of made out of a log that's that's really really gorgeous, and then and then you know equipment that um, you need to get up into the mountains, and so um, these the Bigfoot people are are for a couple of reasons they're, they're they're fasting. One of one of them is they just absolutely unconditionally opened up the facility for Randy and, and the family and the searchers. Including me, but it was just uh, no conditions. Here it is. There's, there's a hot shower. There's a kitchen. Um, whatever equipment you need, use it. And um, not only that, but every spare moment that this this crew of Bigfoot researchers had, they would go out looking for Jacob and help in the search. And there'd be maps laid out, and they would take GPS tracks, and they would um, they would um, you know. Um, 
um, put them into their algorithms and figure out where we're going to go next week and when, when they can get off work. And they would be there. It was an almost constant um, supply of of these incredible brains and and bodies because we're not talking just driving around in, in four wheelers. We're talking they're they're hiking up the mountain and um, very very fit um, outdoor athletes with uh, probably more knowledge of those mountains than uh, just about anybody in the, in the peninsula. That's incredible. And it's a good um, segue into what I wanted to talk about next is um, beyond the Jacob Gray case, you talk about a lot of cases uh, in the book from all over North America. And I think even a few and maybe in Australia, what are some of the other cases? And I mean, maybe just one or two that really stand out to you for one reason or another, whether it's odd, the mystery surrounding it, the circumstances. Um, are there, there, are there other ones that really stand out in your mind that almost could have been also a focal point in the book? Yeah. You know, one, one of them, um, another one that I think of a lot of these cases, I actually think about every day still. And, um, you know, I was hoping that the publication of the book would allow me to kind of put, um, put these cases to rest in my mind. And that, that I found that to not be true. I dream. In fact, last night I, I, I dreamed about uh, missing persons, but, but one of them, Tyler, um, it, that, that, that fascinates me is the case of Dale Staling at Mesa Verde national park in Southwestern Colorado. And, Dale, uh, this is Dale was not an outdoor athlete. Dale was a, a 51 year old uh, grandfather, who's um, he was he was out touring Colorado with his with his wife, and uh, their their RV broke down, and so they had a little spare time while the RV was being repaired, and so they they went up to Mesa Verde, and I don't know if you. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. Been there, but um, it's, it's a fascinating place, but it's not... It's not one of the more, um, I guess, uh, dangerously wild national parks that we have. It's more of a living or uh, a living museum than 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 a than a park like uh, Glacier or Crater Lake or Yosemite or or Yellowstone. Um, and so Dale was. Uh, they were literally in the museum parking lot, and Dale could see. Um, he could see one of the abandoned cliff dwellings there, the um, 800-year-old cliff dwellings, and it's it's very tempting if you if you've been there. But it's it's simply it's a, it's about a quarter mile stroll down a literally paved wheelchair accessible path, and so this was not a this was not a, a grand trek into the wild. This was a this was a leisurely stroll 
down to these cliff dwellings, and then he was going to come back up to the air-conditioned museum, and um, they'd, they'd be back down the down the mesa on their way to get their RV again. And he didn't. He never returned. And so uh, rangers were on it pretty quickly, and they gave him a, they gave him a little time to uh, you know to get back you know before the park closed and for the day. And um, you know usually you know somebody will get lost and and they'll show up about dark and. And that didn't happen. And so the next day, a full-on search um, was uh, was engaged, and um, still no Dale. And um, uh, do you want to hear the conclusion of that story, which is very recent? Or <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you hang? yeah, we'll leave the uh, Jacob Gray uh, ending because I, I would like people to read read your book, um, you know, to get the ending of that and, and more details. But yeah, please share the ending of, of this case. So I just I just wrote about this in in an update for the paperback version of the book and um, as, as a sort of coda at the end of the at the end of the book. But um, so in September of 2020, last September, um, this is interesting. But um, back back in the late 19th century, in 1891, there was a there was a Swede who was a geologist, and he was he was in. Mesa Verde National Park um, in the name of science, but what he was actually up to was uh, was it was today what we just call a form of grave robbery. And um, uh, in fact, uh, his his exploits in Mesa Verde National Park led to the 1906 Antiquities Act to to try to protect um, um, public public heritage sites. From being um, from being robbed in this way, but he he uh, he he took a bunch of artifacts and the the human remains of, of twenty indigenous residents of Mesa Verde and shipped them over to Scandinavia, where they ended up in the Finnish museum. And um, uh, different different American tribes and different politicians have spent. 50 years trying to get those remains back to Mesa Verde where they can be reinterred. And that, that was successful and completed in September of 2020. So last fall, um, those, re- those remains were brought back. They were reinterred in the park at an undisclosed location. And um, uh, the uh, several uh, tribal entities recognize uh, a traditional four days of, of mourning, and then they announced that, uh, that this had been done and, um, and uh, these indigenous peoples had been brought back from Scandinavia, reinterred in Mesa Verde. The day that they announced that, um, the, uh, the, the National Park Service's Investigative Services Bureau, which is sort of like the FBI of, the, of park rangers in, the, in our national parks, got a tip on their anonymous tip line saying, um, with GPS coordinates saying we, we found, we found, uh, uh, human remains, uh, way off trail, miles off trail, um, in a place that you're not supposed to go in the park. Otherwise it's probably going to be assumed that you're a grave robber. And those, uh, those remains, uh, were Dale Staling. So, no. so seven years after Dale went missing, his discovery coincides with the reinterment of 20 indigenous residents of Mesa Verde National Park. And so, I don't know, I haven't talked to Randy about it, but I think, you know, um, 
if you don't believe in coincidences, well, that's, uh, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's pretty incredible. Um, this, it's actually a really great segue into what I wanted to talk about next with, you know, there's lots of theories about why people go missing in the outdoors. Um, in terms of Dale, do you have a theory or, you know, do you not want to share it? I, I mean, I'm kind of putting you on the spot with it, but I'm curious. Yeah, you know, wow. And, and because, you know, because, you know, it was, it was a, it was a, a quarter mile stroll down a wheelchair accessible, um, paved, um, pathway. And it was a very hot day. It was a hundred degrees and, and he didn't, he didn't have water. He didn't have food. He wasn't prepared for an outing. He was just a, kind of a museum visitor. And, um, and then th- this happens to me. He saw a sign that said the petroglyph trail and who doesn't want to see petroglyphs, right? So you, you I think we convince ourselves, um, it's just a, it's just a little ways down there. I'm going to go check it out. If I get too hot or thirsty or tired, I'll turn around. And um, some so there weren't many people on the trail at the time because it was very hot. And um, some European visitors did report that oh yeah we saw that guy. Um, and then we did we played we did a leapfrog on the trail and we saw him a couple times. And so they had witness of where he was last seen. But after that, it's really strange because there is I, – I hiked the path and um, trying to get in Dale's mind. And, um, you know, there are certainly places where you could wander off trail, but I think you're um, – it's pretty obvious you're off trail. And so, um, you know, it, it, it's not – it's inhospitable kind of cactus, cliffs, sagebrush. Um, you know, you you're – there's a – um, there's incentive to stay on the trail. And um, his wife claims that he had a really terrible sense of direction. But uh, to not come back to the trail after you figure it out pretty quickly that you're off the trail, that's really strange. And so I talked to um, I talked to Cliff Spencer, the superintendent of the park, and they had repellers rappel down um, any kind of a cliff face uh, anywhere near that trail looking for any kind of clue of Dale. And, and it, they, they found no clue of Dale, but they found um, um, a car trunk load of, of binoculars, purses, backpacks, hats, sandals. They found all these different items, but none of them could be, um, could be pinned to Dale. And um, when, he, when he was found in September, he was 4.2 miles from where he was last seen. And so he he bushwhacked 4.2 miles of rugged country in high heat, um, and he's also had he had suffered uh, multiple back surgeries. He had a really bad back, and so he just he wasn't athletic, he wasn't active, and um, for him to go 4.2 miles in that terrain is um, it's a head scratcher, Tyler. I, I don't know, I don't know. Wow. Um, yeah. I mean that's. That's incredible. That's that's a really long. That's a long distance to travel in that kind of heat, probably without no water or supplies. Um, talk to, I talked to the superintendent again you know, just a, just a couple of weeks ago, and he said that where they did find him, and all, all they would tell me that it was in a drainage, um, and and the remains were under a, a lone cedar tree. But that drainage had been searched in the initial search by by uh, two searchers on horseback. Wow. Um, you know, and, and that's sort of a that's sort of one of the characteristics that, that um, happens time and again in the book is, is when people are found, if they are, uh, oftentimes they're found in an area that, that had been searched in, in the initial search. 
Yeah, that's that's really interesting. Um, you cover in your book um, so many different theories or thoughts on why people go missing in, in the wildlands and in the outdoors. I mean, everything from, you know, Bigfoot animal attacks just to getting lost, you know, exposure, hypothermia. You even discuss, I think, uh, at a couple of times, you know, uh, cult-like entities that, that live in the woods and whether or not they might play a role. And I'm wondering... After taking such a deep dive into the issue, are there any trends or prevailing thoughts for you on, you know, that maybe explain why there is in certain geographical areas of the United States and North America such a high number of missing persons in the wildlands and the outdoors? You know, that's a great question. And I think um, I think at the end of the day, Occam's razor is is the answer. The most likely thing is, 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 is the thing that happened. And, and, um, you know, I was, I was thinking about this. I was, I was on a search a couple of years ago, uh, very close to where I live here in the upper peninsula. And, um, we were doing a grid search and it became very apparent. And, and this is going to sound obvious, but you know, um, a down decaying log can very easily hide a body, you know, um, somebody falls, and uh, I could be walking three feet from from that body, and if I'm on the other side of a log, say, uh, I might not see it. Um, you know, it's not always that simple. You know, dogs can smell, you know, if a dog team has come through. But, you know, most of the time, the most likely thing is is the answer. It's those other cases that um, that, that fascinate me. And, and I don't have, I don't have answers other than, um, you know, I think the case with these athletes, a lot of my, a lot of the people that I profile in the book are outdoor athletes and, and a fit, a fit athlete can get themselves more and more and more lost pretty darn quickly. You know what I mean? Like, um, um, they they can, they can go the wrong way, uh, very efficiently. So I, I think some of these athletes just get themselves into deeper trouble when they're, they're using their physical attributes and, and not, um, not, not saying, wait on, wait a minute here. This is, this is what I need to do because I don't know where I am. That's, that's a really great point actually. Cause I remember thinking that reading your book, I think it was a, a you talked about a, a few runners, trail runners who went missing in, in Colorado, um, who were, were, I think they were younger, younger men and, um, and, you know, basically not even in the prime of their life yet, just in exceptional shape and they virtually vanished. And it seems like, um, you're probably right. They probably relied on those physical attributes mixed with like really dense, really tough terrain to search. I mean, all over North America, you have these dense, uh, topographical areas, like whether it's Colorado or the peninsula up here in uh, Washington state. Um, like, is that something that you notice? Like a lot of the times when you were investigating these cases, you were in an area that it's like, Oh, it would really, it'd be really hard to get out of here if I was hurt or lost. Like it's not going to be a cakewalk by any means. Absolutely. And, and, you know, you factor in where the, the, the person might be injured that maybe they fell, um, a lot of, a lot of cliffy areas, um, a lot of water, water possibilities too, with rivers and, um, and, and lakes and these bodies of water. And, and, and so, so when the searcher shows up, I mean, I think, I think, I think search and rescue is much harder than, than we feel like it ought to be. And, uh, you know, we have, we have dogs, we have helicopters, we have four wheelers, um, we have satellites. Why can't we just find these people? And, and I think, um, like you say, when you're out there, um, you know, you, you, you get a sense for, uh Oh, 
if I'm, if I get lost out here, who's, who's going to find me? And, um, you know, it, it, it still happens and it's, it's 2021 and it, you know, it happens almost every day. Yeah. It, it's, it's incredible. Um, one last thing I want to talk about because you do bring it up in your book and obviously it's topical with, uh, me doing a series on, on Chris Fowler who went missing on the Pacific Crest Trail and in, in Washington. Um, you briefly covered Chris's case, um, in your book and I'm wondering, can you tell me, you know, uh, what was that experience like for you? Yeah, so Sally, uh, Chris's mom and, and Randy have become good friends. I don't think that they've ever, ever met in person, but they talk on the phone a lot. Uh, Randy, I love Randy that he's not an email guy. He's not really a text guy. He's a phone guy. He's old school that way. And um, such such a great conversationalist. And so, yeah, we were, we were in, I think we were in British Columbia and um, driving, and just for it was like an hour, and they uh, they they talked, and Sally knew I was on the speakerphone, and um, you know I I have I have just through that conversation I have I have tremendous respect for her because she's become she's become an expert on on missing persons and like like Randy has, and so they would they would put their their brains together, and um, you know t- together they're quite a force for for trying to find some answers. I, I feel I really feel for Sally, um, but I think she's really brave in her in her attitude and and her um, her approach in trying to find her son. Um, I, I Chris Chris seems like a really interesting guy, and I you know um, a really tough guy. From what I understand, um, you know his his foot was really in bad shape when he decided to head out in that last storm, the last time anyone had ever seen him. And, um, I know I've, I've done some cycling on the, on the continental divide. I did a couple of races from, from Canada to Mexico and, um, self-supported and that drive to just keep pushing and, and, you know, just get a, just get a few more miles under your belt. Um, and so I, I respect that. And, um, I, I, I think I could see what happened at least to, to what got him into that storm. Yeah, I, I want to thank you very much, John, for coming on today. I think it's been really eye-opening. I think, you know, th- there's a lot of conversations about missing persons, and I think people sometimes forget that, um, you know, people go missing outside all the time and every day, like you said. So it's important to highlight that and keep talking about it. So for everyone out there listening, go read The Cold Vanish. It's 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 very enlightening. It's very sobering as well, but um, it's it's excellently written. So thanks, John. I really appreciate having coming on the show. Hey, thank you, Tyler. I appreciate what you do. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with John Billman. You can find his book anywhere you get your books, and I highly recommend picking it up. It's a fascinating read. I plan to do at least one more of these interlude episodes prior to Chris's series, so stay tuned for that in the next month or so. Right now, I'm hoping to release Chris's series by late April or early May, but I'll keep you updated about that. As always, thanks for listening to a podcast for the missing with me, Tyler Hooper. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. 
Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.